for our reading of Scripture this morning, we turn to the Psalms, Psalm 17, Psalm 17. We had said last week with regard to the instruction of the Catechism on prayer, its introduction, that many, many times in the Psalms, the psalmist prays that God hear his prayer, and the psalms are full of prayers, which is important to remember why we also sing the psalms, because when we are singing the psalms, we are praying to God often. One example is right here in Psalm 17. It is both a prayer, as the heading that is in most Bibles indicates, and you will discover David pleas for God to hear his prayer, expresses confidence in that. There's many, many things to learn about prayer by reading prayers such as this. And you may compare your own prayers with this prayer and other prayers. Hear the right, O Lord. Attend unto my cry. Give ear unto my prayer that goeth not out of feigned lips. Let my sentence come forth from thy presence let thine eyes behold the things that are equal. Thou hast proved mine heart. Thou hast visited me in the night. Thou hast tried me and shalt find nothing. I am purposed that my mouth shall not transgress. Concerning the works of men, by the word of thy lips, I have kept me from the paths of the destroyer. Hold up my goings in thy paths, that my footsteps slip not. I have called upon thee, for thou wilt hear me, O God. Incline thine ear unto me, and hear my speech. Show Thy marvelous loving kindness, O thou that savest by thy right hand them which put their trust in thee from those that rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. From the wicked that oppress me, from my deadly enemies, which compass me about. They are enclosed in their own fat. With their mouth they speak proudly. They have now compassed us in our steps. They have set their eyes, bowing down to the earth like as a lion that is greedy of his prey, and as it were a young lion lurking in secret places. Arise, O Lord, Disappoint him, cast him down, deliver my soul 
from the wicked, which is thy sword, from men, which are thy hand, O Lord, from men of the world, which have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure. They are full of children, and leave the rest of their substance to their babes. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. We read that far in God's holy word. And consider this morning the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 46. Questions and answers 120 and 121. Why hath Christ commanded us to address God thus, our Father, that immediately in the very beginning of our prayer he might excite in us a childlike reverence for and confidence in God, which are the foundation of our prayer, namely, that God is become our Father in Christ and will much less deny us what we ask of Him in true faith than our parents will refuse us earthly things. Why is it here added which art in heaven? Lest we should form any earthly conceptions of God's heavenly majesty, and that we may expect from His almighty power all things necessary for soul and body. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, on a number of occasions, and especially last week in our introduction of prayer, you were taught and have been taught that prayer is a form of fellowship with God which has great significance for our understanding of the covenant as a relationship of fellowship. Because that teaches us that the form in which we enjoy fellowship with God in one major way is prayer. Prayer is a form of fellowship that gives prayer a significant place and function in the Christian life of fellowship with God. Now that's not its only place and function as taught by our Reformed creeds. The canons teach, for example, that Prayer has an important place with regard even to sanctification and receiving the grace of God. For example, in the Canons Head 5, Article 2, we read that the flesh is mortified more and more by the spirit of prayer. 
Then two articles later, we read that we are to be constant in prayer so as not to be led into temptation. Notice, that's one of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. We are to be constant in prayer so as not to be led into temptation and seduced by and comply with the lusts of the flesh. Canons Head 5, Article 4. We learned other things about the place and function of prayer in question and answer 116, which you can read for yourself. But it is a means, as we even read in this Lord's Day, of making request to God. I make this point that prayer is a form of fellowship in opposition to the charge that has been made by many brothers and sisters who have left us to form their own denomination and their notions of prayer. They claim that prayer is only the fruit of fellowship. They do not say that it is a form of fellowship. And they claim that to say otherwise makes prayer a second means alongside of faith by which we have prayer, by which we have fellowship with God. And we even make prayer one of the works by which we are justified and make prayer the ground and basis of our fellowship with God. That's not true. Prayer is the fruit of God's fellowship with us. It is the fruit of God's grace. It is a fruit of faith. It is not the ground of our salvation or a work by which we are justified as the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism itself makes plain. But make no mistake, prayer is a form of fellowship with God. That should be very evident by its essence. What is the essence of prayer? What is prayer? It is talking with God. And even God talking with us. And talking is a form of fellowship. If that were not enough, consider the nature of prayer. What is the nature of prayer? And the answer is, it's a form of worship. Prayer is worship, as is made plain again by the Scriptures and the Catechism. Well, worship is fellowship with God. Consider the motive of prayer. Why do we pray? Is it simply because we are needy? And the answer, of course, is no. We pray to God because we love Him and we know He loves us by faith. Not only that, consider the form of the address of our prayers. Our 
Father. Our Father. So consider with me this morning, fellowship with our Father in prayer. Fellowship with our Father in prayer. First we consider the address, then the confidence, and finally the worship of prayer. First the address. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches us a lot about prayer by bringing to us at the very beginning the command of our Lord Jesus Christ that when we pray, we pray to God as our Father, even saying our Father. Not saying the one whom we hope is our Father. Maybe perhaps one day will be our Father or even omitting that address because we don't believe God is our Father, but commanding us a command that faith takes seriously and considers and meditates upon as an important part of prayer, our Father. One of the things that this address teaches us is that the very address of prayer is foundational to prayer. It serves as a ground and a basis for something in prayer. It is intended to move us, or as the Catechism puts it, excite us to something. That's implied. That's implied by that very address. That address is foundational to two main aspects of prayer. First, it's a means by which we ask God for what we mean, need. And secondly, it's a means of thanksgiving, to express thanksgiving. And think of how the address of God as our Father impacts that, is foundational to that. If you, for example, have a child who goes to its parents in their need, rightly goes to father or mother to ask for something, some food, some clothing, some shelter, some comfort, but addresses mom as the old lady and the father by some common name that's used for one's buddies that would be disrespectful. And you would find not only before granting the request, if it is even granted, the parent would address that disrespect. And if you asked the child, you would discover the child really would have no confidence that mom and dad would even provide what is asked for. The child itself should know that that is disrespectful and dishonoring way to address one's parents who are a gift of God. Consider also that it is part of thanksgiving. What a difference it makes when one is being thankful that one considers that it is the Father 
to whom we are thankful. Again, think of a child. What a difference it makes. Even would a child express thanks to, say, a neighbor or someone else, or even to one's parents, but forgot to think of them as parents. And then imagine how much more thankful that child will be if he understands that this is my father and my mother who have provided for my needs out of their supply, who have given their life for my life. And so also it is in the Lord's Prayer. It is intended to invoke reverence and honor as well as move us to true thanksgiving in prayer. So notice, to put it in short words, that the address itself is important for the very purpose and blessedness of prayer. I bring that up and somewhat belabor the point because if you are like me, how often do we simply address God without even thinking about it? Even when we're on our knees in prayer or our eyes are closed and we're talking to God, our interest is in the content of the prayer. Our interest is speaking about our needs, which is why often we also forget to be thankful. But we never thought. We never considered what actually comes out of our mouth. Oh, we said our Father, but we didn't pause mentally to think. To think about what is really meant by that. For when we do, when we do, by faith, it will excite in us a childlike reverence, respect, and confidence in God, and promote thanksgiving even when remaking requests. Because remember, prayer is the chief part of thankfulness. Now, when we address God as our Father, it's important, it's fairly significant for us to remember that we are not addressing simply and exclusively the first person of the Trinity, certainly the first person of the triune being of God. That individual distinct person is known as the Father, and is certainly, therefore, also our Father. But remember, that's His relationship in His being, His relationship to the other two persons. And what God is as regard to one of the persons is what the entire being of God is with regard to us. I make the point again because 
to think otherwise and imagine otherwise really is a form of disrespect and dishonoring to God. If we would pray, if we would worship, if we would give thanksgiving in prayer, which is what we are doing, but only worshiping, only giving thanks, and only making our request to the first person, then the other two persons would rightly be offended. They are omitted. They are not considered even though they are God, equally God. You have to remember that, that it's really impossible for us to address God without addressing the entire being of God. So we have to remember that that term, Father, speaks to us with respect to our relationship to the entire being of God. God, in His entire being, is our Father. And we should remember this also because it's a reminder of what God is with regard to Jesus Christ and His human nature. This is what the entire being of God is with regard to even the divine Son, the second person, in His human nature. It's not simply the first person that is the Father of Jesus in His human nature. No, He was conceived by the Spirit, remember? The entire being of God, including even the divine Son, which only adds to the mystery is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in His human nature. That's who Jesus was praying to when He often prayed, My Father, or Our Father. And so also we ought to have that conception also in our prayers. Even when we address our Father, we're addressing the Son and we're addressing the Spirit under that name. Also in this regard, we should understand that God is also teaching us something very significant with regard to fatherhood. This is a good place for us to remember why it is that Jesus commanded us to pray our Father. Jesus is a good teacher. Now Jesus was not teaching. He was not saying we must only address God as our Father. There are many prayers in Scripture that teach otherwise. God has other names and may be addressed in other names. But he was saying, however you address God, that which is right and true according to Holy Scripture, you must never ever forget that if you addressed God as the triune being, if you address God as the rock of our salvation, if you address God as our Lord and our King, never ever forget that first and foremost, foundationally and primarily, He is your Father. You might ask why. 
And the answer is, at least in part, this. First of all, this is not only foundational to prayer, and I think I demonstrated that. Think of how important that is for prayer. Then simply say, addressing God as our Lord with the understanding that we are His servant. Certainly, we do that. Or addressing God as our King, understanding that we are His subjects. Again, very important that we understand that that is true. That is not done away with simply because we address God as our Father. But it's foundational to prayer because that is our fundamental relationship to God. In a very real sense, God is Lord and God is King over all of the world, even the unbelievers. He rules over them, not now in His grace, but with a rod of iron. God is the rock of our salvation. God is the Almighty, the triune God. But our fundamental relationship to Him is that of father and children. It's similar in our own homes. Or it ought to be. There's much here that is instructive with regard to our own homes and our own relationships one to another. If you ask yourself, what is the fundamental relationship that I have in this life? Look at all the relationships. Look at yourself. And it should be that of a child to a father or a child to the parents, at least. And that is simply an earthly picture of what is true of us spiritually and what is really the reality. I belabor this point because you ought to read Lord's Day 46 as instructive to how you conduct yourself in your own home. If your children do not know you as father or fear to address you as father or come to you in their needs and in their troubles, afraid to ask or express little, if any, thanksgiving to you, then the problem very well could be that you have not taught them what it means truly to be a father. Oh, you've taught them how to be Lord. You've taught them your king. You've taught them your top dog. You may imagine they respect and honor you, but really, they can only truly respect and honor you in love if they know you as Father. And you say, now, what does it mean to be a father? Maybe you have to ask that question because your father was not a good father. Maybe you never knew your father as father. Be that as it may, that certainly would affect your notions of fatherhood, but it's still no excuse because we need to go to the original father, God, and learn from Him. How does God deal with us? In fact, what's really going on in prayer? Why are we coming to God 
in prayer? What is the attitude of God toward us in prayer? And what is our attitude toward Him? Do we come to God as the one who's only ever berating us about what we do wrong and our sins? Or do we see our Father in prayer as the one who's also forgiven our sins and spends so much other time also comforting us and leading us and guiding us and being our friend, walking with us and talking with us, living with us in His house. So that's something to also perhaps meditate upon when we address God as our Father. What is God teaching me about fatherhood? Another thing worth mentioning although I will not belabor the point, that especially in our so-called gender-neutral culture, where he is she and she is he, where it is a grievous, grievous sin to identify as another race, but we may identify as another gender, creating all sorts of practical issues and even exposing so that the little children can see the folly of the world, it's worth pointing out that God reveals Himself as a male, a he, a father, in distinction now from a mother or a female. Now, I don't have time to belabor or get into that point. What's interesting is the Scriptures show us something really marvelous about God's fatherhood and that it includes all those characteristics that we normally associate with mothers. No, God is not mother. No, God is not female. God reveals Himself the way He does very deliberately. And the same God deliberately made two distinct genders and gives them to us in our birth. But nevertheless, the nurture and the love and the pity and the care and the comfort that we normally associate with mothers is all found in God the Father. God, even there, is showing how transcendent He is as our heavenly Father. Now, move on. Another point the Catechism makes is that God has become our Father in our Lord Jesus Christ. The idea of that amazing phrase is not that God was never our Father, that God is not eternally our Father. Our fathers are not denying that and teaching only a fatherhood of God in time. Nevertheless, it's an important thing. Our fathers are not afraid. They do not fear the charge of heresy or doctrinal error by speaking of God becoming our Father in time. That's right. There's a place for that. Now the question is, why do they do that? To lead us into the error? To lead us into not thinking God is not eternally our Father in election or any such nonsense? No, of course not. They're doing that to emphasize the reality of God's grace. You see, it is true that God has become our Father in terms of our experience. What we know, what we're aware of. We are born dead in trespasses and sins. For many, many Christians, 
They knew only God as their enemy, knew God only as someone who was against them and opposed to them, who was their destroyer. Until that is, they are converted. Converted by God Himself. And the amazing thing is that one of the first things God does is makes all of those whom He redeems and saves in time know that they are children and He is Father. It happens very quickly. And in that sense, God has become our Father. And notice too, for Jesus' sake. For Jesus' sake. When we use that term, for Jesus' sake, often at the end of our prayers, one of the things that we ought to be reminded of is not simply that Jesus' sake means that God will answer our prayer and God will hear us. And we may even pray on the basis of what Jesus did, especially on the cross, shedding His blood for our sin, so that God now has fellowship and may have fellowship with sinners. And sinners may come to God with the bold confidence of faith making such requests. But it reminds us of how even in the beginning of our prayer we may address God as our Father. And what a privilege that that is. It's not a right. Except we may speak of it as a right in Jesus Christ. It's a privilege. Privilege of grace. Now the confidence. Hopefully you see how that builds confidence, how that grows confidence, how foundational that is for confidence, and why that's important. What then is the confidence of prayer? And this is important, significant. You see, there are many who pray. There are many who dress God, perhaps even address God as Father. And if you look at their prayer, or you even speak to them about their prayer and ask them about their confidence, they will either respond that they have no confidence whatsoever. They're very doubtful about a lot of things with regard to their prayer. And if you proceed further and ask them, well, why then are they praying? They will tell you because, well, that's the thing to do as a Christian. This is what I was taught to do. I know I'm supposed to do that. I know God requires it of me, but they, they have no confidence. In fact, they can't even perhaps even address God as our Father. They'll use words like, let us try to pray. And that's offensive to God. God wants us to be confident in prayer. Now there's a theological reason for that, but let's just consider the practical reason with regard to God Himself. You know, it's conceivable that God can grant us everything that we need without prayer. Certainly God is able to do that. In fact, God does that. Even when we talk about prayer as a requisite, a requirement to receive what we need, it is always the understanding that that is by grace and according to God's discretion. And proof of that is God supplies all of the needs of the ungodly. The rain falls on their crops just like ours. They receive sunshine just like we do. They have health just like we do. They have money and jobs and food in their cupboard. And they never ask God for it. In fact, they curse God. They damn God. They mock at the idea of God as Father. What's going on there? God is showing He's perfectly capable and able to provide for the needs of anyone apart from prayer. And yet God ordained prayer. He said, this is the way 
that you ask me. And this is the way that I will grant you what you need. God obviously didn't do that because he's a conditional theologian, nor does saying that make one a conditional theologian. It doesn't make us first and God last. Because God works prayer. God instills us with that need to pray. Apart from God, there is no need. There is no hunger and thirst for God. There's no understanding of what prayer is. Besides that, ask yourself why this is. And the answer is because it's honoring to God. Well, how is that? How is that so? Because it takes faith to pray. God wants us to be confident and to trust in Him and Him alone. And God works that and demonstrates it by prayer. Think about it. Think about how poor a God God would be. Think of how foolish and even irresponsible it would be for God if He went through all the trouble to make us His children. One of the great, great, great themes of our salvation. So much so that we pray, God our Father, we are His children. And ask yourself, why does God do that? The answer is, He wants us to know that. That's what He wants us to know. And now would God go through all the trouble of sending His own Son to die on the cross, to purchase us and adopt us and all these things, and then be pleased that we can't even address Him as Father or have no confidence in prayer? What kind of children would those be in your home? If they were always running around doubting whether you were their father and mother, you would say there's something strange going on with those kids. There's something wrong there, either with the children or perhaps the parents. Some parents, no doubt, by the way they treat their children, there's reason to doubt whether they're actually father or mother. But be that as it may, that's not true of God. God neither wants it that way, nor does He work doubt, doubt in prayer. Praying with doubt is dishonoring to God. It is irreverence to God. It is not faith. It is sinful. It is something that if we find in ourselves needs to be corrected. And one may make that a matter of prayer. Confidence, therefore, is not obviously in ourselves. It's amazing how the budget confession makes a point of that in its response to the false notions about prayer and confidence of prayer by the Roman Catholics. And in that regard, they make the point that we don't pray on the basis of our worthiness. There's no need to pray on the basis of someone better than you, like some saint or even the Virgin Mary. That's the argument. I pray invoking their name or even pray to them because they're better than me. And the Reformed faith says, well, there's your problem. You're not supposed to pray on the basis of who and what you are. You don't pray because you're a better person than this one or that one. And certainly you don't stop praying, therefore, because you're such a terrible person. Our confidence isn't even in prayer itself. Oh, yes, prayer is what God says it is. It is a means by which we request God for what we need. It is a means of thanksgiving. It is a form of fellowship, but our confidence isn't in prayer itself as such, or the motions of prayer, or how we pray, or the form of prayer. 
Certainly those things are important. Certainly those things manifest who and what we are. We pray with a certain form. We use certain words that we would never use speaking to other people because God is God. We address God as our Father. We think of Him as our Father. We make our requests respectfully. And we are truly thankful. We don't simply go through the motions when we say we are thankful. But nevertheless, our confidence may not be in the act of prayer. Confidence, you see, is faith. Faith is confidence. Faith is assurance. And what is faith always assured of? If you ask yourself, how is it that the Spirit works confidence? And the answer is, by giving us and increasing our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is confident that God will certainly hear our prayers for Jesus' sake because of what Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Even when, like you read in Psalm 17, where David expresses the confidence that God will hear him because he is righteous, unlike others who call upon God, even others who are his enemies, he is confident that God will hear his prayers even for their destruction. An important point right there. Notice what he prays for. I'll return back to that in just a second. David is confident that God will hear his prayer because they're unrighteous and he's righteous. Now David is not pointing to his works. David is not saying simply because I walk on the paths of the upright, which was true, and he says that. But he knows and expresses even in prayer it's because he's confident God views him through the Messiah, through the Christ. That he is righteous because his righteousness is Christ. God hears and answers because his sins are forgiven. And therefore, his confidence is that God will hear him, that God will give him what he asks, that which he asks, as we saw last week, lawfully, and that which he asks according to the will of God, that which he truly needs and not simply what he wants. That's the confidence of prayer. With regard to those needs and wants, we're going to see that prayer also, very importantly, includes our spiritual needs, put in terms of the forgiveness of sins and leading us not into temptation, but delivering us from evil. Right here, I simply want to tie this in to David's prayers about the destruction of his enemies. One reason the church today does not sing the Psalms and does not read them is because they see all those references and they're friends of the world. They have many friends who are actually the enemies of God and they really can't pray for their destruction. That's a real, real problem. If you find that's true of us, what you need to do is not reconsider who God is, but reconsider your friends and why they're your friends. And perhaps why then also your prayer life suffers so horribly. But let's keep in mind also what David was referring to. And that's the enemy within. His own depraved and sinful nature. You see, if you expect not only to have your sins forgiven, but God to increase you in holiness, for there be more and more the reflection of the image of Christ in you, 
Prayer is how that happens. This is at least in part what we mean when we say prayer is how we express our need and thankfulness for the grace and Holy Spirit of God. And included in that is deliverance from our actual sin, from the power of it. If you find, for example, your life is consumed with sin, you have many besetting sins, they overpower you and take you down. It's an enemy. And you need to pray. Pray fervently. And pray with confidence that God will destroy that enemy. Including and beginning with certainly the destruction of the power and dominance of that enemy so that he rules you. And hopefully in the end that it's eliminated. Prayer is also worship. Worship. That's what it means when it brings up reverence. Oh, that the church world today would remember that. Oh, that we would remember that. God is pleased with our prayers. Prayer is worship that honors God because God is pleased and delighted to be thanked for what He gives us and when His children recognize that. Prayer is even a chief form of worship. In fact, it's really impossible to worship God without prayer. And there may be a day, sometime in the future, maybe our own future, where we cannot worship together because of persecution, where we cannot sing together and gather together without being killed, and you will discover perhaps even because you're in a prison, that you can worship God only in prayer. But what worship that would be. The fact that it's worship also explains why even prayer and personal prayers are communal. Our Father, we pray. Not my Father. Not my personal Father, although that's true. But our Notice that's inclusive of self. One really cannot pray to God unless he believes and is confident that God is indeed his own personal Father. Not simply the Father of others, but my Father. That's faith. But also not me exclusively. Always our. When I pray in my home and you pray at your dinner table, we pray our Father because we're remembering that in dinner tables all over, Men and women and little children are praying to God. It's a reminder that even when I pray our Father with my wife, that somewhere my children, perhaps in their own bedrooms, have prayed and are praying our Father and remembering that the parents are praying with them. It's a reminder that even when we pray together here in this Christian church, our Father, that we are remembering that God is also the Father of Christians on the other side of the world. Or when we even gather as Protestant Reformed churches and pray together our Father, we are remembering that there are other congregations and even denominations of which God is Father. Why again? Because it's part of worship. And we worship God not only personally, but 
together because we are not the only child of God. God has many children of which He is Father. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, O Lord, our God, thanks be to Thy name for being our Father and making us Thy children. Provide for us everything that we need, even in this earth, as our Heavenly Father, and provide for all our heavenly and spiritual needs as our Heavenly Father. Protect us, keep us, comfort, continue to love us, O Lord, our God, for Jesus' sake. Amen.